How are you guys doing out there? Better than that driver? The worst motor scooter driver in history. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you here this morning. Uh, thank you for letting us take a couple of weeks off. We got back last Sunday night, and uh, good rest and recuperation was needed and, and, and enjoyed. Uh, we are feeling a little bit rejuvenated, but we did miss you guys. And I hope everything's been going for you well this July. Everything going okay? I hope so. Uh, but I, I do know this. I know the world well enough to know that not everything is great for everybody all the time, right? There are good things that happen, and then there are some horrible things that happen. There are hurts and pains, things that go wrong, things that make you go, geez, I'm almost at my wit's end, and if one more thing happens, I'm, I'm going to just lose it. And then the one more thing happens. We came back from uh, vacation with one of our G, one of GFIC things, breakers failed, and the uh, refrigerator uh, went out, and the garage door opener went out, and everything was ruined and spoiled and smelled like Jeffrey Dahmer's living room. <laughs> Some of you get that. Thank you. Uh, anyway, then one more thing happened, right? The air conditioning went out of my car as I was headed down to ease for a meeting, and the thermostat on the inside of my car read 103. So uh, I was not, uh, not real happy or, or cool that day. But uh, maybe that's kind of the track your life has been on in the last couple of weeks, well, one more thing happens and you're just going to lose it. So you walk in there today and you're thinking, okay, I'm not really sure about anything, really. Things are kind of topsy-turvy. You're just kind of holding on for dear life. Uh, you're kind of hoping maybe nobody talks to you because if you ask you how you're doing, you might just lose it. Uh, and if they do, you just kind of mask your pain with, oh, I'm doing great. How, how's about you? How are you doing? But you know you made it here. You're here. You're, you're alive. Uh, you know there's a God, a God who says he cares, uh, and you, and you want to hear something from him. Uh, so you try to sing the songs, and maybe he's connected with some of the messages of those. Um, there are times when you think maybe some of the people who wrote those songs or people who selected them have gone through some of the stuff you're experiencing, and you think, okay, maybe. Maybe today I will be touched somehow. Maybe I'll be spoken to. Maybe I'll be uh, encouraged by this God of ours before this day is over. Maybe there's some truth from God that will help. And then the, the message starts. And the preacher launches into this wonderful message out of the verse in the Bible. And it, and it sounds so good. It sounds so hopeful. It sounds so uplifting and so encouraging. And so not what you are experiencing. Then when the message is over, what you really want to do is just, you wish everybody would just fade away and you can have a direct line to that pastor and give him a big hug that gives you the leverage you need to take your fist and ram it into that happy, smug little face and knock his teeth down his throat. That's kind of the way you feel because you don't know what everybody else felt about that message. For you, you knew that there was not truth in it. We're in a message series called Twisted. We're looking at four Bible verses, four passages that are typically among the most misunderstood, misrepresented, taken out of context. And of these four messages, I got to tell you the truth, I was actually hoping this one would fall to E. <laughs> I really did. Uh, and the reason I was hoping it would fall to E was because I wasn't sure I could do it justice. And the reason I felt that way was because there was a, a time in my life when I was kind of going through a rough patch. And I heard a sermon on this text that rang so untrue to me that I was the one who wanted to hug that pastor until his teeth went down his throat. It was one of those messages that made me pray as I became a pastor that God would kill me rather than let me teach error. 
Chances are, if you have been a Christian for any length of time whatsoever, you have heard this verse, verse, you know this verse, maybe you've even quoted this verse or had it quoted to you. So I'm going to just pray for us before we jump in, and then we'll unveil the miracle that is this passage. God, thank you for the day. Thank you for these people. Thank you for this church. Thank you for what you are doing. Thanks for sustaining us through the last five years. Thank you for your love for us and your undying devotion and loyalty to us despite our weaknesses, despite our sins, despite our affronts to you. Thank you for calling us as your children, for loving us through the mess. We pray that you would uh, descend on this place this morning, that you would be heard, that you would be felt, that you would be seen with spiritual eyes, that we would be changed from our time with you this morning in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Without further ado, suspense over the verse, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, plans not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And that passage goes on from there to talk about how if you ask God, you're going to find him. Uh, the odds are decent. If you have any kind of a Christian heritage in your family, uh, you might have a story about that verse. You might have a coffee mug with that verse on it. You might have had a graduation card with that verse on it because that's the most quoted passage in, uh, of all of all time in all graduation cards. Uh, maybe you got a nana that did a cross-stitch for you of that verse on a pillow. Uh, it's a great one to throw out, I think, when everything is going super fine for everybody, right? No one's going to take it apart. And everything's going great. And really sort of look into what it actually says. Really? Really? I've got only plans to prosper you? You're all going to be prosperous? I've got no plans to harm you? No trials? No issues? No, no tribulations? You're not going to fall down a, I don't know what that thing is, a drain thing, in, that, that poor guy in Thailand. You're never going to get sick? I've got tre tremendous plans for you for a terrific future? No one's going to realize when everything's going super well just how damaging that verse taken out of context can be. So I want to get my ire under control, and I want to do the three things that E has kind of talked about as we've gone through this series. Three things we need to do as we're going to grasp God's sort of content in any particular passage of Scripture. And I think when we're done, despite the fact we'll kind of dismantle sort of the mis, uh, uh, misinterpretation of this passage, we're going to still end up with some incredible hope and find that God is awesome. Well, what are the three things? First thing we want to do is we want to look at the context of any verse. We want to know who wrote the verse. We want to know to whom the verse was written. We want to go to the broader context of what was going on around the edges of the verse. What came before it? What comes after it? Kind of where does it fit in all of the message? What's the context? The second thing we want to do is we want to interpret Scripture with Scripture. One of the best commentaries on the Bible is, in fact, the Bible. Uh, interpretive dance is a close second, which is why we have Sam in our band. That's a private joke among the band. Yeah, yeah, there you go. He might do that. He might pop in at any moment, right? So just pay attention to him. When we look at a verse... We want to look at what the Bible also says about that theme in other places to see if they're interpreting it correctly, right? When it compares Scripture with Scripture. And number three, we want to find some personal application. What is it actually saying to us? What are we supposed to do with it? How are we supposed to apply it? Got a little applied mathematics for you on the screen, but you're also supposed to apply Scripture. The Bible is more than something we study. It's something we're supposed to live. So, Jeremiah 29, 11. God has plans to prosper you, not to harm you. 
to give you hope and a future. What is the context? Fortunately for me and us, we've got the context of this given to us pretty straight up in verse 1 of this very chapter. Here it is. See if you can pick it up. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the elders and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Question number one, who, who wrote the text? Anybody got a guess? No, thank you. <laughs> Somebody's still awake. Answer, ta-da, Jeremiah. Yeah, it's right there, Jeremiah. Prophet Jeremiah is writing from Jerusalem, and he's writing it to whom? To the elders, the surviving people. Those basically, Nebuchadnezzar, when he came in and overran the last two elements of the nation of Israel, tribes of Judah and Benjamin on the south, the only parts that were left, he carted the best and the brightest, the leading aristocracy, he carted them all off into exile 650 miles away or so to Babylon. Uh, he could have included in this letter a postcard, you know, Israel, wish you were here, but I don't think he did that because Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. I don't think he had a great sense of humor, not a lot to laugh about. Well, okay, why were they in exile? Why did God take his chosen people and allow Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, a pagan nation, to overrun his people and cart them off to another land? Well, because they had blatantly rebelled against God over and over and over and over and over and over again, turned to false gods, worshiped gods, that weren't true, and God said, finally, enough's enough. And because of your bad behavior over this extended period of time, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be in exile in Babylon for the next 70 years. And so we need to understand, as we look at this particular passage, 2911, that there are specific promises made to specific people in Scripture, and there are general promises that can apply to everybody. The truth is that Jeremiah 2911 is a very specific promise to a very specific group of people, the Jewish exiles. We need to see this promise as not necessarily specifically for all time for all of us. It's specifically to the nation of Israel enduring these 70 years of exile. Problem for us is that whenever we read a verse in Scripture, God has plans to prosper you, we immediately think, okay, that means he has plans to prosper me. That means me. Why, why do I go there? Because I, like you, love the idea that God's going to bring prosperity. I would love to be the main character of all the great stuff that's going to happen in Scripture. I want it to be all about me. And that's kind of the problem. In fact, uh, there's a couple of high flute and churchy words I'm going to kind of throw at you today. Uh, there's two ways to look at Scripture. One is called exegesis, E-X-E-G-I-S-I-S, -I -I not G-E-S-U-S, -S, Jesus, exegesis. It literally means to pull out or to pull from. It means to look at a text and to kind of delve into the context, delve into what does other scriptures say about this, delve into the word meetings, what's going on around the edges, and to discern what that passage is actually saying to us. When we're going through the book of Romans, for example, we're going through it exegetically, expositionally. We're going through verse by verse, word by word, understanding what it's saying, and then saying, okay, now what does this mean for us in the present day? Another way of looking through Scripture is eisegetically, and that's, a, that's the kind of thing you don't want to do. It's basically you read a verse, and you immediately throw yourself into that verse as if it is exactly and only for you, right? So we insert ourselves into the text, and it's kind of diff difficult I think it's kind of dangerous. If you take uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you, 
to give you a future and say, okay, that's for me. That's for us right today. Because anytime that something bad happens, your refrigerator goes out, your air conditioning goes out, your, your uh, garage door opener doesn't work, you get sick, something happens, your roof caves in. What do you tend to do? Oh, this is a violation of God's promise. This is not supposed to happen. You know, I prayed, I wasn't blessed. I tithed, I didn't get rich. I'm serving God, I, my kid gets sick. When we believe that this promise in Jeremiah 29 is for us and for all time, and things go bad, it can lead us to one of two conclusions. God really doesn't exist, and I believe on a false promise, or God's really not that good. He's kind of a liar. And that's the danger of reading ourselves into a promise. We start to believe that God is some kind of a cosmic, kind of vending machine. We put our coins in, we do what we're supposed to do, we punch the button, and now it's supposed to come whatever we think God has promised us. Problem is, if he's not promised that, then we are being disappointed for no good reason. Right? We've reversed what Scripture actually says our role is. God is not sitting up there going, you know what? I think the main theme for me today is to kind of ponder what great thing I can do for Dwayne. I mean, he's, he's thinking about us, but that's not his main goal. Our main goal as Christians is to serve him and glorify him, right? But we get, sometimes we get it reversed when we want to throw ourselves into Scripture, see a promise, and go, okay, I believe that's for me, and therefore God has to do exactly what I'm looking for, right? Another question related to context is this. We're looking at Jeremiah 29, 11. What comes before Jeremiah 29, do you think? Thank you. Jeremiah 28. Not a trick question, right? And if you read Jeremiah 28, and you should, just don't take my word for it. I could be conning you, right? Don't, I don't want to be the preacher that kind of you want to jam your fist down their throats, right? Look at it for yourself and see if it doesn't say this. Here's a quick summary. There was a guy that showed up named Hananiah. And Hananiah comes in and says, hey, guess what, people? Exiles, uh, got some word from God for you. This exile thing is not going to last 70 years. It's only going to last two years. In two years, God's going to crush the Babylonians, and we're going to be out of here. God's going to break them down, and we're gone. And so there's this little showdown between Hananiah and Jeremiah. And Hananiah gets all up in Jeremiah's face, and Jeremiah says, look, wh what you're saying sounds really good. I mean, it sounds really appealing. It just happens not to be true. It, in the modern parlance, it's fake news, <laughs> fake good news, right? False good news. Our troubles are only going to last two years. And Jeremiah says, okay, you are wrong, and here's, here's what's going to happen. Uh, you're going to die. <laughs> Pretty strong words. At seven months of that year, guess what happens? Hananiah drops dead. Uh, really ought to be an HBO miniseries about this somehow. It's so, such, such a cool thing. You want to know why people name their kids Jeremiah, and you don't know any kids named Hananiah? <laughs> Jeremiah is a true prophet. Hananiah is the guy of deliverer of fake news. So it's easy, really, for us to fall into the trap of pursuing fake good news because we want what feels good. We want easy believism. We want God to do everything we want him to do. I really would love it to be all about me. We'd love it to be all about us. And without even knowing it, we can kind of fall into the trap of eisegesis where everything is, we're reading all the wonderful things we, think, we believe God has promised to do, make us happy, serve us, right? And even us preacher dudes, you know, if we're not real careful, can slip into that. I don't spend a lot of time ragging on other preachers or churches, but if you watch TV, especially towards the end of the year or the beginning of a new year, 
you're going to hear all kinds of messages that go something like this. Well, this is the year of abundance. This is the year of your breakthrough. This is the year of your victory. Today, you're going to prosper. This seed you're planting is going to bring a harvest, and on and on and on, okay? Now, I sincerely hope that this is the year of your breakthrough, that this is the year of prosperity. I sincerely hope that this is going to do whatever God was going to do to meet the needs you have. But the problem is, if that's what we are seeking, and that's of all we're seeking, then one day when that doesn't happen, we get discouraged. We think God has forsaken us. We think God has gone back on his word. We think maybe he's not even real. Maybe he's not really that good. And before long, we reduce Christianity to a, to a God that's all about serving us. God exists to make my life easier. He exists to make me comfortable. He exists to make me prosperous or to bless me. We become the main object when the reality is that God is the main object. He is the answer. He is the prize. Not us. Jennifer Lawrence, I think I've got a slide up here. Yeah. Jennifer Lawrence says every time she goes someplace, her first question, the only question she actually asks is, is there going to be food there? <laughs> I think as a preacher, given the fact I've traveled a good bit of the world, I think one of the things I have to do as I'm preaching is to say, you know what? Could this message I'm preaching be preached anywhere? I mean, if this verse in Jeremiah 29 is just about you and me never having problems, if it's always about us getting the new car or the new house or the new job or the better life or never being sick, how does that play to the Christian Syrian mom who's lost her kid to kidnapping and is sitting in a refugee camp? How does that message play if you're a Coptic Christian in Israel being blown up by ISIS during your church service? Because God's truth is God's truth everywhere. And it needs to be preached, and when it's preached, it should be truth everywhere. But people often teach 29.11 in Jeremiah as if it applies really only to Western Christians in, in the United States. God blessed the United States, right? Forget the rest of the Christians everywhere else in the world. God's supposed to give us the new iPhones, supposed to give us our dream houses, supposed to give us our, our best parking spots in the mall. Problem with that is it's a very self-centered, ethnocentric view. I should be able to go to Nicaragua, and I have, one of the poorest countries on earth, where the average wage is less than $2 a day. And if I can't preach a message here that I could preach there, I shouldn't preach anywhere. It's got to be true for the inner city youth. It's got to be true for the wealthiest people in the suburbs. It's got to be true for Appalachia. It's got to be true for the inner city everywhere. If it's not true everywhere, I don't think it's true anywhere because God's truth is truth everywhere. So if we're pursuing a God who simply gives us joy with no pain, blessings without any trials, prosperity without any bumps in the road, I think we're actually pursuing fake good news. And I think it's dangerous. I think it's why a lot of people walk away from the faith. Well, God didn't do what I wanted him to do. He didn't do what I think he promised to do. I tithed to get rich, it didn't happen. I went to church every week, my kids still got sick. The problem is this, again, this is a verse, a very specific promise to a very specific group of people. So let me just kind of balance that a little bit. I'm going to throw another couple of verses out that I think really are general promises to everybody who's a Christian. See how these fly with interpreting Jeremiah 29, 11 like it's often been interpreted. 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I don't see that on a lot of coffee mugs. 
I don't see that in a lot of graduation cards. I don't see that in a lot of pillows, like Nana, cross-stitched. Nobody says, that's my favorite verse. How about this one? Philippians 1.29. For it is granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Do you see how 29.11, taken out of context, flies in the face of other general promises in Scripture that apply to us? Those verses, you don't see them on t-shirts. Here's the deal. We cannot believe in fake good news. The real good, true news is that there's, God is looking out for us. He's doing some incredible things. But we know from Romans that we fall short. We've got sin to deal with. I was writing this message, I was reminded of that by Jackie. I got up one night about, ah, correct me if I'm wrong, Jackie, about 1 a.m. after about three hours sleep. And I was downstairs working on a message. From my perspective, I had this breakthrough idea that woke me up from my slumber, and I wanted to make sure I captured it so I didn't lose it like you lose your dreams and not remember them the next day. From her perspective, I was threatening my health and working too many hours at work. And as proof, she laid out some unassailable evidence. I had fallen short of a specific promise I had made to her. I had promised to paint the bathroom upstairs. We'd bought paint several months ago. The paint can had been literally sitting in the doorway of that bathroom for months. Here's the problem. When it comes to God's standards, we fall short. I fall short. You fall short. We all fall short. We've seen that in Romans. We don't just barely miss. We miss by a long shot. So far, it's not even funny. But we serve a God who did for us what we could not do, earn righteousness. We cannot deal with our sin. We cannot do anything. We, so God gives us something through Christ that we did not earn, did not deserve, right? He uses our trials that he allows into our lives as Christians to conform us, to shape us, to maneuver us into looking more and more like Christ. We serve a God who's not just in it for our temporary well-being, but preparing us for an eternity with him. Therefore, knowing that when God delivers us something we don't really want, we don't really like, we don't panic, we don't run away from him, we embrace him because we know something about his character, we know something about his nature. He is a good God. The gospel, the good news is that Jesus did something for us. The one who knew no sin became sin for us, died in our place. Because of that, our only reasonable option is to follow him and to give our lives to him. Now listen, that message is not all that popular. It's a lot more popular to preach, oh, God's going to do everything wonderful for you. He's going to have his attention on you all the time. Nothing bad's ever going to happen. Never going to get sick. Always going to be wealthy. Have everything you need. Again, that just doesn't preach everywhere in the world. There's too much death and destruction. You need to understand what's going on in the world. Satan has temporary control. Bad things happen. So, right before Jeremiah 29.11 is verse 29.10, after the, after the showdown between Jeremiah and Hananiah, God comes back and says this. Just in case you forgot, just in case you think I've changed my mind, just in case you think there's any confusion about what's going to happen here, here it is. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, Babylon's going to go away. They're going to be overthrown. Ain't happening in two years. It's happening in 70. When that happens, I'm going to visit you. And I'm going to fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place. And he did, because when the Persians overtook, the new king of Persia came up with this great idea out of nowhere that God gave him. 
to send all of the Jews back to their homeland. But look, 70 years. That's how long it's going to take. Do you remember who Jeremiah was writing to? The elders. How old do you think they were? It didn't say, but they were elderly. <laughs> Imagine saying to a 70-year-old that it's going to be 70 years, and then I, God, am going to come back, Babylonians are going to fall, and I'm going to bring you guys back to the land. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to bless you. Plans to prosper you. Plans not to harm you. To give you hope and a future. And you know what they're thinking? Dude, we are going to be dead in 70 years. We are not going to see this. See, this promise wasn't even for all the people who heard it as exiles in Babylon. Many of them are going to die in Babylon. But that is our beef, isn't it? We want it now. We don't want to wait 70 years. We don't want to have to have something good happen to some other people later on. We want to, we want to be prosperous now. We want to go home now. We want, I want my air conditioning fixed now. That's what we want. Because it's hot in July, right? And it's God's fault because he made it hot in July. So I'm driving around with a car with no air conditioning and it's hot. So look, context helps. Getting the context helps. But listen, just because this verse isn't to us specifically does not mean there's not some truth there for us. Let's look at another scripture. Does God have plans for us? Does God have a purpose for us? Can we gain something by looking at other scripture? How about this one, Ephesians 1.11? God works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Oh, yeah, God's got a plan. He's got a plan for everything, and we are included in it. Or Romans 8, which we'll get to in a few months. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. All things. All good things. All hard things. All tough things. All painful things. All shameful things. All misery. Maybe you don't like to make plans. But God does have plenty of plans to bless people all day long. We interpret scripture with scripture, and what do we find? God is a good father who loves to give good gifts to his kids. Does God prosper people? Sure, all day long. God actually allows wealth. Wealth isn't a bad thing. If you got it, you can use it for God's purposes. That doesn't mean that everybody's going to be wealthy. Sometimes it can be you're wealthy in relationships. Sometimes it can be you're, you're healthy. Sometimes it can mean you're just know that you're right with God, and no matter what happens, you are in good place. So, when you get cancer and the prognosis is not good, can you still have hope? Sure, if you know where you're going, if you know where you're headed, if you know that this life was, tempor this life was temporary all along, if you know that you're just a pilgrim all along, sure, you can have hope. You can hope that God can use doctors, sure. We can hope that the name of Jesus is bigger than the name of cancer. We can hope in a God who says everything is possible with him, but when the diagnosis is dire and you actually die, guess what? If you are a Christian, hope is not lost. Hope is not lost. When the worst that can happen happens, you're going to go home to be with him forever in a place he has prepared for you. And if you are not dead and you are still alive on this earth, God has a purpose and a plan or he'd take you home. So even though this verse in Jeremiah isn't specifically for us, there is truth in it and hope in it. And we see it in the rest of scripture. 
And we shouldn't stop on verse 11 because the rest of the passage, as we say, could be a coffee mug, 12 and 14 verses, right? It's consistent with other scripture. It says, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Why is that promise something we can basically put on a coffee mug and say it's for everybody for all time who's a Christian? Because Jesus said the same thing. No matter what you're going through, God says he'll be there for you. Whenever you call on him, he will hear you, will deny no one. When you cry out to him, he's there. No matter what you do, he says, I will never leave or forsake you. I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will not have to fear. Why? Because God is there with us, comforting us. So the main point of this message is not that God delivers you from your trials. And you don't have to worry about ever having any harm come to you or every trials or never get sick, never be in a lack for anything. It's that God is absolutely good through and through. So our faith does not rest just on what he does for us on a daily basis. Look at Christ. We look at the cross and they look at what he has already done. He has secured something for us that we could never secure for ourselves in eternity and life. Because what he has already done for us on the cross makes it just a smart call to say that we are his and he is ours and we are going to live our lives for him on this earth. And that's why, despite all the goofy preaching I've heard on this verse, it's still one of my favorite passages. Let's pray.